Father, we ask for your help this morning to not merely be hearers of your word, but as we hear to be transformed, that we would be doers of your word, that by the power and the help of your Holy Spirit, that we would grow in our love for you, that as we're reminded of your deep love for us and your care for us and your commitment to us in Jesus, that we would be strengthened spiritually. Lord, I pray you'd help me to preach faithfully and to preach clearly that your son Jesus would be exalted. Lord, I pray that you would minister to me as I preach, that you would stir me up by way of reminder and stir up my affections to be reminded of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, I pray you'd work in us in a way that pleases you for your glory this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a few weeks ago, I went with my two sons to clean out my grandmother's house. She's 92 years old. We just had to move her into assisted living facility. And many of you probably had this experience before. You've gone to clean out the house of a loved one. And it's mixed with a, a number of different emotions. Great memories, picture books there of old family gatherings and memories we could laugh about. Uh, possessions there that we remember from all of those Christmas and Thanksgiving gatherings. You know, my grandfather had a ton of little gnome statues, an interesting kind of collection, but just we'd laugh looking at some of these gnomes and how much he enjoyed collecting those. It also filled with some challenges sometimes. You've got items, lots of items you try to figure out to do with, and inevitably, sadly, what happens sometimes is there's certain items everybody wants, but there's a lot of items no one wants, right? There's a lot of items where it's like, well, we can put this in the yard sale, or we can throw this in the trash, or we can load up and do another round to take to Goodwill. And that's what we spent a lot of that day doing. All those items had been given away for keepsake and memories, and we were kind of trying to figure out what to do with the rest. And moments like that, when we're taking all these possessions and putting them in, in a yard sale for someone else, really kind of one person's junk to go be another person's, hopefully, treasure, and then throwing things away, they're a good reminder of what will happen to our possessions when we leave this earth. They're a great reminder spiritually for us to give ourselves to something that will matter 10,000 years from now. I looked at my sons on the way home. I said, you, you saw what we just did for my grandmother's house. Well, if Christ doesn't return first, you'll probably be doing that for me one day, and your children will probably be doing that for you one day. It's a reminder, enjoy what God's given you, but don't build your life upon your possessions. Live for something that will last 10,000 years from now. We continue on in our sermon series in 1 Thessalonians. We're in our fourth sermon out of a 10-sermon series in this book. And this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see the long-term hope that the Apostle Paul had in his ministry. He had short-term plans, plans that sometimes came to fruition and other times were hindered, but he had a long-term hope of what would matter on that last day when Jesus returned to earth. That hope empowered him to give himself to Christian ministry, to give his life for what would ultimately matter in eternity. As we look at this passage this morning, may we be strengthened as a local church to live for what matters, to give ourselves together in our fellowship for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 17, and we'll finish off in chapter 3, 
verse 5. It's a unit of Scripture that flows together here in this letter from the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonian church. And if you want to take that pew Bible in front of you and use that, if you don't have a Bible with you, take that. Turn to page 986, page 986, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 is where we're going to start. And if you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, we want to give that Bible to you. Use it this morning. Take it home with you. Uh, See one of our members around you or any of our pastors at the door afterwards. We'd love to connect you with someone that could read God's Word with you. Let me read all of chapter 2, verse 17 through 3, verse 5, as we begin our time together. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. And just as it has come to pass, and just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Well, the main idea that I want us to see in in this section of 1 Thessalonians this morning is this. If you're taking notes, here's the main idea. The gospel moves forward through hope, self-sacrifice, and suffering. The gospel moves forward through hope, self-sacrifice, and suffering. So we'll see as we consider the Apostle Paul his ministry, his desire to advance the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ. We'll break this main idea down into two parts. The first part in, verse, in chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, we'll see a first way that the gospel moves forward there in verses 17 through 20. Gospel ministry moves forward through hope. Gospel ministry moves forward through hope. There will be difficulties in following Jesus. There will be affliction in Christian ministry. That's the way that it always has been. That reality was on display in Paul's life and in his ministry. And in verse 17, we read about some of those difficulties. Now, at the end of chapter 2, Paul returns to the affliction and the persecution that he had experienced when he was back in Thessalonica. We've referenced a number of weeks that Acts Chapter 17 is a place you can go and read about his visit to Thessalonica. It resulted in persecution and ultimately him being physically separated from the church there and unable to return. We read there in verse 17 that he was torn away from them. That phrase torn away, it's actually a a metaphor there. In the original language, that phrase torn away, it means orphaned. He's saying we, we were orphaned. That phrase, it really gives the picture of a a parent having their child torn away from them. The physical separation from the Thessalonians was something that was deeply distressing to Paul. He wanted to be with them. And like parents, 
having lost their child, he was forcibly separated from this church that he loved and unable to return to them. His desire was to remain with them in person, even though they were clearly on his heart, on his mind, his affection and attention there. He wanted to be there with them in person. He's, what he's stressing in verses 17 and 18, he just goes on and on and on, basically saying, I really, really want to be with you. I'm, I'm eager to return to you. It's my desire. It's, it's what I want. I want to be face to face with you. And he tells them that he's repeatedly tried to make his way back to them. Now think about that. It shows us Christian ministry happens face to face. It happens in person. Now, sadly, we've got this distinction that's taking place in churches today, in-person worship and online worship. Now, hear me right. I understand there was a time for that. There was a way to accommodate people in a difficult season. I think churches, we did that. That was fine for churches to do that. But it's not an ongoing plan to try to teach Christians that you can have something called online worship. The technology in the day of the Apostle Paul was writing letters and sending them. And he wasn't satisfied with kind of just sending letters to encourage them. He wanted to be there with them face-to-face to instruct them. And we see later that though he was unable to do that, he didn't give up. And he kept working to send them someone, and he sent them Timothy. Let's consider the importance of being face-to-face, shoulder-to-shoulder here this morning. I mean, what an encouragement it was to hear you all sing this morning. I really do think uh, one of my boasts as a pastor, I think we've got one of the best church, singing churches in Charlotte. I really do. Uh, it's such an encouragement to me. I know regardless of what, what I'm feeling when I come in here on Sunday morning, I'm going to be lifted up by hearing you all sing. And isn't that God's plan that we see in Colossians chapter 3? Sing to one another, right? We sing to one another to sing and boast in Jesus Christ and what He's done. What a powerful impact it has on our lives when we gather and we minister to one another face to face. Well, Paul's stressing here in verse 17 and 18, I really wanted to be with you, but I couldn't. At the end of verse 18, he's saying, I, I tried again and again to come, but I was unsuccessful in returning. And look at what Paul attributes their separation to at the end of verse 18. But Satan hindered us. But Satan hindered us. He didn't say, well, I I really wanted to come, but things just didn't work out. He didn't say, I really wanted to be there, but man, that that mob of of crazy Thessalonians, like they hindered me from returning their persecution and opposition. What he said rather was, Satan hindered us. Now, he doesn't give the specifics of how it was that Satan hindered his ministry, but he makes it clear the one blocking the way, Satan. Satan is the the name of the devil, the evil one. He is a real spiritual force. You know, if you're here this morning and you're new to uh, the Bible and trying to understand things, you need to understand that that Satan is not just like a mythological creature. This isn't an image or metaphor. Paul's talking about a, a real spiritual force of evil, of opposition to God and Jesus, and therefore to God's people. Satan's name means accuser adversary. He accuses God and Christ. That's what he did back in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say these things? God just doesn't want you to be like him, Adam and Eve. He accuses God of not being good, and therefore he accuses Christians and lines himself up as an adversary both to Christ and to his 
people. In the next chapter, we also see that Paul refers to Satan as the tempter. Satan hates God. He hates Jesus. He hates this local church. He hates you. He hates your marriage. He hates your family. He hates your efforts to be here this morning to hear God's word. He hates your worship. He hates your obedience. He's a real spiritual force of darkness. Paul recognized him as a hindrance and an, and an enemy. Paul recognized the harm that he was intending to do to the ministry of the gospel. Now, to be sure, Paul doesn't blame Satan for every obstacle that he ever experienced in ministry. You can look at other places in the New Testament. One of those places is in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. And there, the Apostle Paul attributes an obstacle there to God. He says in verse 6, he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So, so how does he distinguish? Here's God working. Here's Satan. Well, one, I think he sees the sovereignty of God in all things. But I think when he points to Satan in particular, it seems to be he would point to the activity and work of Satan when he saw persecution for the gospel. Persecution that would hinder the advance of the gospel. He pointed to that as the very activity of Satan himself. Now, now hear me correctly here. Sometimes people say things meaning, meaning good by it, like, well, persecution's a good thing. The church grows in persecution. Well, it's true that by God's grace, we have seen the gospel endure and churches endure persecution. It is not a good thing. Persecution is not a good thing. It's a wonderful thing that we can meet here freely this morning. Persecution is something, an attack by the devil from the outside of the walls of the church meant to hinder and harm you. I got to go to Russia a number of years ago. It was like three years ago now. And I heard from pastors there the devastating impact of persecution on gospel-preaching churches that happened during communism. Christianity was close to being wiped out in that country. It was in God's providence that when communism was overturned there, a great work of the gospel was happening again. When there was freedom in that land and resources from God's people were being poured in, we saw lots of growth. Persecution, there's nothing romantic about it. There's nothing good about it. We can praise God that He's good, that He prepares His people for persecution, that He supplies everything that's needed, but persecution, the Apostle Paul saw it as a hindrance and something from Satan himself. Now, Paul didn't attribute every hardship and obstacle to Satan, and neither should we. We shouldn't think, well, I stubbed my toe this morning. There goes Satan again. I don't know. Maybe he was at work in that, right? But I, I think like we shouldn't fall into the ditch where we're just giving him so much credit. He doesn't deserve credit for so many things. So don't give him credit for everything in your life. However, I wonder how often you might fall into the other ditch. There's one ditch, right, of paying him too much attention. There's another ditch of paying him no attention, not recognizing him, acting as if he's not real. And I even wonder, in, in our theological circles, we tend to fall in that ditch too often. And I understand Satan's real, and he hates us. He hates that Oakhurst Baptist Church got replanted. He thought he had this church. He thought he had it shut down and ready to be turned into something else. And God had a different plan. We praise him for that. Satan hates everything that God loves and that God's people love. 
we would do well to recognize he's a spiritual force of evil. We read in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So if I told you this morning, hey, we just got a, a news report over Twitter, it's being broadcasted right now, that a lion escaped from the Ashborough Zoo, made its way down to Charlotte, spotted in the Oakhurst neighborhood this morning. That's not real, by the way. I'm just, it's an illustration. Don't get nervous. We're good. Children are safe over there. Some of you are looking at me like, what? How did I not know this? Let's say that happened. And I said to you, yeah, he's loose in the Oakhurst neighborhood. He's taken a few people out already. Like, be careful when you go out to your cars today. Imagine, you wouldn't want to leave and go to your car. You'd want to stay inside here, right? You'd be on the alert. You'd be sober-minded very quickly. You wouldn't be heading to Viva Chicken so quickly. Think about what is going on. Well, Peter uses that metaphor. A roaming lion. He's roaming around seeking to devour God's people. That happens through persecution. Well, think about how you would be on the alert through that. Well, think about in the work of ministry how we have to be alert to the opposition of Satan. We've got God's resources. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about putting on the whole armor of God. God's already provided that armor to stand against the schemes of the devil. Uh, We should pray for God's grace and strength to put that armor on, to pick up the sword of the Spirit, to use the sword of the Spirit by God's grace to pick up the shield of faith, which is able to extinguish all the fiery darts of the devil. We should ask for God's help to to strengthen one another to put on that spiritual armor. We've got to be aware of our enemy. I wonder how Satan is attempting to hinder the work of ministry here. I wonder how he's attempting to hinder your personal ministry, you walking in obedience to God. How might he be hindering you or seeking to in evangelism and sharing the good news of Jesus with those around you? Let's pray. Let's ask for God's help to put on that armor. Let's pray at all times in the Spirit that by God's grace we would stand firm and persevere. That's what we see happening with Paul and with the Thessalonians. Now, Paul was distressed over the situation, but notice, though he had been hindered, he still had hope. He was hindered from seeing them, but his hope in Jesus Christ was unhindered. Satan's attacks did not lead Paul to despair. He was hopeful. In verses 19 through 20, we see that he recognized the attacks of the enemy, of Satan. But look at where his eyes were fixed, not on Satan, on Jesus. His eyes were fixed on the return of Jesus Christ. And though he was unsure if he would see the Thessalonians again face to face, he was sure he would see them on that last day when Jesus returned. Brothers and sisters, the work of Christian ministry is sometimes hindered, but it is never without hope in Jesus. That's what we see with the Apostle Paul. These last two verses of chapter 2, they find Paul looking to the return of Jesus Christ, that last day. Verses 19 through 20, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Again, this sounds like a language of a parent doting, delighting over their child. And he says, you're our hope, our joy, our crown. 
what that means. There is hope. When Jesus returns to earth, Paul anticipates in hope that this church will be right there with him, ready to be presented to Jesus when he returns. They are his joy. When the Lord returns, Paul will rejoice in the faith of the Thessalonians to be revealed on that last day. They are his crown of boasting, a crown, a symbol of, of victory. This boasting, not a sinful boasting and self-accomplishment, rather a boasting in the victory accomplished by Jesus Christ alone through his death and resurrection and his reign. When Christ returned, Paul's hope and joy and crown of boasting would be the people he ministered to. They would be there 10,000 years from now. Those he evangelized, those he saw, he saw converted, those he established in the faith, those he was exhorting to grow as Christians, that is what would matter at the end of time when Jesus returns. 10,000 years from now, what will matter? I've heard it put three things will last forever. God, His Word, and the souls of people. You want to give yourself to what will last forever? Give yourself to knowing God and all that He's done in Jesus Christ. Moments spent in the Word are never wasted. Moments spent in corporate worship with God's people, never wasted. Christians who will look back on their lives who gave themselves to faithful service of the Lord, would never thought, I should have spent more Sunday evenings or mornings at brunch. Oh, they're never wasted. Time that God brings spiritual profit to us and to others. Give yourself to His Word. Give yourself to investing in your own soul, spiritually, and the souls of other people around you. There is eternal fruit that God will bring for that. Expect hindrances, but also expect the return of the Lord. The Apostle Paul helped prepare the Thessalonians for expect hindrances. There will be hindrance and affliction and opposition. And as evil as that was, as difficult as that was, it would be for just a moment for what will last is the people that Christ himself has redeemed through his sacrificial death on the cross. Nothing can stop the return of the Lord. So give yourself to what will matter when he returns. That's the logic of the Apostle Paul. He had hope in Jesus, a settled confidence in the return of Jesus Christ to earth, and that strengthened him to persevere and to continue to labor in gospel ministry. Yeah, I mentioned at the end of chapter 1 that at the end of every chapter in Thessalonians, it mentions the return of Jesus Christ. Every chapter ends in 1 Thessalonians with the return of this good news of Jesus Christ, that he will return to earth. And we've got to keep in mind that certainly when we sing about the cross and proclaim about the cross and the empty tomb, that's the gospel. But it's also the gospel that Christ ascended up to the right hand of the throne of God that He's reigning this morning. That's good news. It's also good news or the gospel that Jesus is returning one day. And I wonder, brother and sister in Christ, is Christ's return a part of your gospel? Is it part of the good news that you meditate on and rejoice in and proclaim and, and look forward to? This is a great reminder here, Christian, to not lose sight of the return of Jesus Christ. Paul taught this young church repeatedly about the return of the Lord. See, the gospel certainly is about Jesus, the eternal Son of God. He came down the first time to earth to deal with sin. He didn't come to judge the first time. He came to deal with sin. 
to lay his life down, to die on the cross as a substitute, as a payment for sin. He rose from the dead on the third day to show that he was who he said he was, the Son of God, the only one qualified to step in and be a substitute on our behalf to pay for our sin. And that God was pleased with his death on the cross, meaning that God's wrath and judgment against sin is satisfied through the death of Jesus Christ. Nothing more needs to be added to the work of Jesus on the cross. That's why Jesus said it is finished, meaning it is perfect. It is complete, and he rose from the dead. And it's good news this morning that he is reigning. And it is good news that there will be a second coming. As surely as he came the first time, he will surely come again a second time. Brothers and sisters, that's good news. That causes us to delight in God. And the Apostle Paul, he ties it in so many places in this letter towards Christian obedience and ethics being tied to the return of Jesus Christ. Later on, we'll see, Lord willing, in this chapter, when we get to it, or in this book, excuse me, that holiness, holy living, he ties it to looking to the return of Jesus Christ. If you're looking to Jesus right now, you're going to want to honor him and walk in holiness as he is holy and obey his word, being ready for his return. But here he connects the return of Jesus Christ to persevering in ministry. What kept him from giving up? What kept him from throwing in the towel thinking this was an awful career choice? To go and be a missionary for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, the return of Jesus Christ sustained his hope. And brother and sister in the Lord, it will do the same for you this morning if you'll look to Jesus. I wonder, Christian, have you lost sight of the return of Jesus. One symptom of that I think we can take from this text, one symptom of losing sight of the return of Jesus is that you're not persevering in gospel ministry. Ministry is something together we share as a church. You can read through our church covenant and see what we've committed to as a church. We commit together to the spread of the gospel to all nations. That's not just for the pastors and elders of this church. It's not just for those of you who want to go and be missionaries. It's not just for the select few who really are passionate about evangelism. It's for us together as a church that we're concerned with the spread of the gospel in the city and indeed to the ends of the earth. And, and I wonder how often your hope in this present world weakens your efforts in gospel ministry. Paul looked at the return of Jesus and there was hope and that caused him to persevere in gospel ministry because serving God and waiting for the return of Jesus, they go together. You know, every generation in the church, I'm not talking about just generation out there, but generation in the church in here, has an excuse for not giving themselves to the spread of the gospel. In your 20s, it can be, well, I'm young, and I'm a college student. It's hard to get up on Sunday mornings. It's yeah, I got so much on my plate. It's exam week. It's hard for me to give time to serving the Lord. In your 30s, it can sound something like, I'm building my career. Work is busy. We have young kids. We don't get a whole lot of sleep at night, which is really difficult. In your 40s, work is still busy. This is the time to build my career and advance. 
I'm trying to get my kids ready for school and college and saving for college and retirement, all those things. It's just overwhelming, and I feel stressed out. Empty nesters, I've heard this from pastors, empty nesters can feel like we've served for so long in the church, and we, we have an empty house now, and now it's our time to have some freedom and be able to do some things that we enjoy. Retired folks, well, well now it's our time to take vacations and to travel the world. And I'm not saying any of those things are wrong, but if those things are starting to take away from your spiritual growth and your commitment to others' spiritual growth and your commitment to the ministry of the local church, I think you'd have to ask yourself, am I putting my hope in this present world and not looking to the return of Christ? Now, to be sure, I am thankful for the wonderful examples we have here in our church. Church, do you realize how many students at UNC Charlotte sleep in and don't go to church? I mean, the vast majority. And and every week, now they're on spring break this week, of course, the week I'm talking about it, but they're, they're on spring break this week. But when they're not, we just see rows of 18 and 19 and 20-year-olds who are getting up and coming to church. I praise God for that. I I thank God for the empty nesters that are serving in our church. Roy and Lisa Britton are an encouragement to me, serving as deacons of member care, using their time and energy well. I'm thankful for Dave and Judy Clark, how they've given their retirement to serving people here in this local church and being servants, always the first to sign up for something. I want to be like you all when I grow up. I'm so thankful for Tom and Vicki Belcher and the Purvises and I, Vicki Newell. I, I could name so many of you that are here this, this morning who've just shown this long-term faithfulness by God's grace to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, let's follow the examples and imitate those examples of faithfulness around us and seek to strengthen one another in Christ. As we look to Jesus and are strengthened by our hope in Him as we wait for His return, May we stay busy about His work. Well, let's consider a second movement of gospel ministry. In verse, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we see a, a second movement of gospel ministry. Gospel ministry moves forward through self-sacrifice and suffering. Second movement of gospel ministry. Gospel ministry moves forward through self-sacrifice and suffering. Paul was hindered from returning to the Thessalonians, but he knew they needed help. They needed spiritual help. Paul and Silas, they had to leave Thessalonica because of the persecution. But the Thessalonians stayed there. That was their home. These these new Christians, this new church, they were there experiencing persecution, likely from family members, friends who thought they were crazy for putting their faith And this Jewish Messiah, Jesus, and seeking to follow him and saying he was the son of God. Paul knew they were experiencing this persecution and it was weighing on him. Look there in verse 1, he says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy. Again, Paul's attempts to go back to Thessalonica, uh, repeatedly unsuccessful in returning, but an option that he came up with was send his young co-worker, Timothy, his disciple in the truth. Now, you may wonder, well, if Paul was hindered from going back, why would Timothy be able to make it back there? Well, we don't, we don't really know. It, it could be that he had partly, Timothy did a partly a Greek heritage, and he was able to kind of slip in unrecognized. He wasn't as high of a profile, a missionary of the gospel. That could be a reason. We're not really sure. Whatever it was, he was able to go back. He was able to minister to them and then report back to Paul, which is why Paul is even writing this letter. He received a report back from Timothy, whom he sent. 
Now, sending Timothy, we see here, was an act of self-sacrifice. It was one, though, that Paul was willing to make. He says we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. You, you can trace his ministry again in Acts 17. They left Thessalonica, went on to Berea, and they ended up in, in Athens. Yeah, they're in, in, in Greece. And Athens wasn't the place you'd want to be left alone as a Christian missionary. I mean, it was a lot of work to be done. It was a pagan city, the dangers, the challenges, even just the, the workload that the Apostle Paul and Silas would have to send Timothy away would have been a sacrifice on their part to their work. But he was saying we were willing to leave him behind because the choice he had was leave the Thessalonians alone or he be left alone. And we looked at it like that. His choice was that simple. I'll be left alone. We're going to send Timothy back to Thessalonica to build them up. He made that choice to send them. And we see why in verse Timothy, excuse me, in verse 2, why it was that Timothy was sent. What he went to do? Verse 2, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. The basic work of Christian discipleship is seen right here. Establishing and exhorting in the faith. That, that's just simply put, Christian discipleship. Now, being established means being strengthened. So think about this. This church was new. They had put their faith in this risen Savior, Jesus Christ. They had been baptized upon profession of their faith. A church was formed there. The work had just been started, but it needed to be established. It needed to be strengthened. They needed to, to have their faith and trust in God deepened. Timothy was also sent there to exhort them in their faith. Now, exhortation, it's closely related to encouragement. It means to comfort, means to plead with, to urge. And what's happening here is urging from the truth of God's Word. Here, here's who God is, here's what He said in His Word, and, and urging people to walk in obedience. This establishing and exhorting, notice it's rooted in the faith. And that faith there, it includes what we thought about this past summer in the book of Jude. It includes the faith delivered once for all to the saints. So it's, it's the faith, the doctrine about Christ and God and His Word. So they needed to be established in God's Word, and they needed to be established in their faith, their personal trust in Jesus Christ. So knowledge of God and His Word and trust in God and His Word, that's the faith they needed to be established and exhorted them. Simply put, establishing and exhorting in the faith is the ongoing work of the local church. That's what the Apostle Paul was concerned about for the Thessalonians, and that's the concern for this local church, Oakhurst Baptist Church. It needs to be the concern of our elders. How can we encourage and exhort and help establish and build up this people here whom God has redeemed? We see this works, most simply put, through the ordinary means of grace in our church. Ordinary means of grace means sitting under the regular preaching and teaching of God's Word. Prayer, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So all these things that we do here together, we do those on Sunday morning and we extend those through personal devotion throughout the week. More time in the Bible, more time in prayer, more time in fellowship with God's people, more time proclaiming the truth of God and Jesus Christ and seeking to persuade those around us to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. This weekly Lord's Day worship service, it is a time to be exhorted. 
It's a time to be encouraged and strengthened as we wait for the return of Christ. That is my prayer and my hope for all of us here this morning, that we'd be spiritually strengthened this morning, that we'd be encouraged and built up as we sing and read and pray and hear God's Word. And if the Lord gives us life, the Lord tarries, Jesus has not yet returned, the next Sunday morning we'll be right back here doing the same thing on Sunday morning. That morning, Jesus got up from the dead waiting for his return. Simply put, I think what this does for us and and how it helps us think about our responsibility as church members, give yourself to being spiritually strengthened. Give yourself to growing spiritually. You've made that choice this morning. You've chosen to be here when you could be other places. You've followed through on your commitment to God's Word, to the church covenant here. Keep giving yourself to ways that can, you can be strengthened spiritually throughout the week. I wonder, Oakhurst Baptist Church member, how are you positioning yourself to be strengthened in your faith? Good start this week, but think about the other days this, this week. How can you position yourself to be around other members of this church, to grab a cup of coffee or lunch, to invite others into your home, to encourage them spiritually and do good spiritually, to reach out to an older saint in this church and say, I just wanted to get together and talk with you. I'd love to hear your testimony, how God saved you. To get together with someone and just talk about the sermon. Many of you will do that tonight in community groups. You'll get together and talk about the sermon and try to encourage and sharpen one another. I'm always encouraged by what I hear. I, I preach these sermons. It's easy for me to forget exactly what the points were like four hours later. Hearing others talk about them, oh yeah, that was, okay, that's good. And it's helpful to hear what they got out of the sermon. How are you positioning yourself to be strengthened in your faith? And Oakhurst Baptist Church member, how are you seeking to strengthen others in this church? How are you seeking to encourage and build up others? That's the heart, the foundation of Christian ministry. Now we see an urgency here to send Timothy to commit to the work of establishing and exhorting the Thessalonians in their faith because they faced an imminent threat. We see there in verse 3, there was affliction. That's why they urgently needed to be strengthened. Paul wanted them to be prepared to face the affliction and trials they would continue to experience. Now, when you read through this letter as a whole, and if you haven't done that already, I would encourage you, read through this whole letter sometime this week. It'll help you better prepare, Lord willing, for next Sunday. The, the average like reading pace, if you, you read on an average reading pace, it'll probably take you 12 to 15 minutes to read through this whole letter. That, that's going to be much more profitable than spending 15 minutes on Twitter, I promise you. So just give 15 minutes this week, read through the letter First 1 Thessalonians, and, and what you'll see here is the Apostle Paul, he spent time teaching these young Christians a couple of different things repeatedly. One, he taught them about the return of the Lord. He thought about that at the end of every chapter. But two, he taught them to be prepared to suffer for following Jesus Christ. He just keeps like hammering that home. So this affliction, in other words, wasn't a surprise to Paul nor to the church. Look at verse 3. Paul says, we already knew this. Verse 3, for you yourselves know that we're destined for this, meaning called to suffer. Jesus suffered, and so will those who follow him. Suffering for the gospel is not the exceptional Christian experience. It is the standard Christian experience. Paul says he wasn't caught off guard by this. They weren't either. Notice in verse 4 how the Thessalonians already knew this. 
For when we were with you, we kept telling you. We kept teaching you. We kept telling you this was going to happen. We pointed to Jesus. Suffering came before glory. And so it will be for those who follow Jesus. Paul kept telling them. He kept teaching them that they would suffer affliction, persecution for following Jesus. And it came to pass just as he told them. This was no surprise. One person put it like this. Part of the basic catechism for new believers was instruction concerning the sufferings they were going to endure. The Christian life, it doesn't mean the, when you begin the Christian life, it doesn't mean the end of problems in life. It actually comes with a whole new set of problems. So the Apostle Paul is saying, you're going to have a whole new set of problems. You're going to be persecuted for following Jesus. You'll have father and mother and brother and sister that reject you. Now, some will receive the word with gladness, and you'll see some family members come to know Jesus. Hallelujah. But others, they'll persecute you for this. You know, this flips a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel on its head. The Apostle Paul didn't go to Thessalonica and say, hey, anyone who wants to have an awesome life, anybody who wants physical health and to have lots of possessions, come over here, I've got something to sell you. He told them just the opposite. Jesus, the one who was mocked, crucified, tortured, treated as a public criminal, put on a cross, a place of public execution for those who had done wrong. Jesus, the only innocent one, was treated in this manner. The very people that he came to bring good news to that were waiting for him rejected him and gave him up to be persecuted, to be crucified on a cross. This happened to Jesus, suffering, and then came glory. And for all who follow him, that's the same pattern that will take place in your life. Now, while the Thessalonians could expect suffering, they still needed to be established and exhorted. In verse 5, that's why Paul says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Satan is one who hinders, and we read here, he is also a tempter. That's who he is at his very core. Satan was revealed as a tempter when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, just like he sought to tempt Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he seeks to tempt you this morning, Christian. He's scheming to tempt Christians not to trust God, not to trust His Word. What did He say to Adam and Eve back in the garden to get them to doubt God's Word? Did God really say? And He still whispers that today in your ear. Did God really say this? Can His Word really be trusted? Is His Word really good? the schemes of the devil. Paul knew that Satan was scheming, trying to tempt that group of Christians, and he shares his concern here by saying that he feared that somehow his work would be in vain, which means empty, fruitless, if they gave in to Satan's temptations. So out of loving concern, he sent Timothy to learn about their faith to see how they were doing. Now, that may sound odd, like, well, why was Paul concerned about them turning away? Well, it sounds a lot like what Jesus taught in Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sowers and the soils. Remember the different types of soil there. There was seed that was sown on the path, and Jesus says in that parable that Satan tries to knock the gospel, the seed away, the word, when it's sown. That group of, of soil, they hear, 
and Satan comes and takes away the word. That's in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. The word is sown, they hear Satan, he takes it away. There's another soil along a rocky path there in verse 16. Immediately they receive the word with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. It sounds like Paul maybe had that in his mind, like they're experiencing persecution. I don't want this to be a group that falls away like what Jesus talked about. I I want to send Timothy to establish and exhort them to test and to reveal indeed if they are that good soil that bears fruit. Now, certainly true faith in Jesus perseveres until the end. But you know the resources that God uses to help us all persevere to the end? We are aided by God's grace, and having someone to establish us in the faith. If you're a mature Christian here this morning, God's used someone to teach you the Bible. God's used someone to invest in you spiritually. Your salvation, entirely a work of God. You being sustained until the end, entirely a work of God's Spirit in you. And with that, He uses human resources. Other Christians, preachers, elders, members of the body of Christ to invest in you, to strengthen you spiritually that you would persevere until the end. Paul wanted to minister to this group by sending Timothy to help encourage them and establish them and exhort them that they would persevere to the end. Again, brothers and sisters, we learned something of the work of ministry here, that a concern for the local church must be helping each other grow in faith. One of the ways that churches missed this in the last century, really here in in the U.S., was to view Sunday mornings primarily as an evangelistic event, just to bring your unbelieving family and friends and neighbors to, and that's what primarily what Sunday morning was seen as. It kind of went along with revivalism. Sunday morning is a gathering of God's people on the Lord's Day. I hope that, that we have those here today who are not in the faith and wanting to hear more about what God's done in Jesus. I hope, Christian, you bring with you those that you're seeking to evangelize. It's helpful, those you're sharing with about Christ, to show them a picture of what Christ died for and has created in the local church. That's a helpful part of your evangelism. But what we're doing here this morning is ministering to Christians, trying to build up this flock, trying to build this people up to encourage you and establish you in your faith. It's a primary concern of why we gather. Certainly, the gospel's preached every Sunday. I hope to, to call whoever's standing here in this pulpit to call people to repent and believe in Jesus every single Sunday. But we understand that the call that Jesus gave, the commission to the church, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, that it's followed by baptizing them, meaning bringing them into the fellowship of the church, and then teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded, discipling, building up. You see, a concern for the local church searched centrally must be helping each other grow in faith. And so to our our elders, that's how we must seek to serve here, to give ourselves to praying and to working for this body of believers to be built up and encouraged. Members of our church, we're a Baptist church. Congregationalism means we all take responsibility for the ministry of the local church. Again, that's spelled out in our church covenant. But together to ask the question, how can we build others up in the faith here? How can we encourage others to give themselves to regularly sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's Word? How can you put yourself in a position? Paul told the Thessalonians, I kept telling you. How can you put yourself in a position to keep being told the truth 
about God and what he's done in Christ? How can you position yourself to keep telling others around you how good God is? How much he loves you in Jesus Christ if you've put your faith in him? How much confidence you can take in Christ? We need people to keep telling us that. We need to keep telling other people that. That's what discipling is. That's what member-to-member ministry looks like. Oakhurst Baptist Church, keep giving yourself to growing in the faith. Keep giving yourself to helping others grow in faith in Jesus Christ. I wonder what that could look like in your life this week. I wonder how you could look at your schedule and ask how to order your priorities to grow spiritually and to help others grow spiritually in this church. This all grows out of a heart of loving concern, just like the Apostle Paul had for the Thessalonians. They were near and dear to him. As a church, may we grow near and dear to one another, to love one another and to exercise spiritual help that builds one another up. Well, brother and sister in the Lord, what will matter in your life 10,000 years from now, not 10 days from now, not the common question, where do you see yourself in 10 years? What will matter in your life 10,000 years from now? You've probably heard this quote from C.T. Studd, only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will what? Will last. By God's grace, O Curse Baptist Church, let's give ourselves to what will last forever, God and who He is in Christ, His Word and the souls of people. Christ is risen from the dead. We rejoice in that this morning. And He is one day returning. And we look forward in hope and anticipation of that day that is sure to come. And as we look to Him, may we labor on. May we carry on and see God's grace and help to do that. When our faith is turned to sight, when Christ finally comes at last, let's look at that day and live today in light of that day. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, we are in need of your help this morning, and we're in need of hope, and so we ask that you would stir us up by way of reminder, even as we've considered your word, as a body of believers, to rejoice in the hope that you've given us in Jesus, to look back to the cross and the empty tomb and to rejoice in just how much you've forgiven us through Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross, to find joy and new life in his resurrection from the dead, and by the power of your Spirit to look forward to that day that is sure to come when Christ returns. Father, we ask that you would help us to live today in light of that day. Strengthen us, we ask, And help us to give ourselves to strengthening others here in this church body. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.